Thanks so much for checking out this podcast from Anchor Church Southwest. We really hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources, or info, please check out our website, anchorchurch.com.au. Amen. Thank you so much, Sam. Hey, y'all. How are we? Good. My name's Ronaldo. If we haven't met, lead pastor here at Anchor Southwest. It is a real joy and a pleasure uh, to be with y'all today. So this is what we're going to do. So we are starting a, uh, a new series, and I want to welcome those who are here for the first time. Maybe you've joined us online. Maybe I've met you before on Zoom. So it is just a pleasure to be able to meet you in person here today. I want to remind you that if you are new here, if you've been visiting with us straight after the service, about 10-15 minutes after, we're going to have a, our growth track, which is going to be an opportunity for you to learn more about who we are, our vision, uh, our past, and uh, God willing, our future as well. So we're starting a brand new series uh, called Generous Living from the Overflow of God's Goodness. And the hard part about short series like these and the short series that we just finished last week is that it's hard for the truths to really settle into our lives, into our bones, because change takes time. It takes a lot of grace and it takes a hell of a lot of patience. So this is what you need to understand. I'm about to give us our, my, my vision, my goal, my aim for the next three weeks. What I don't envision is that we're going to master this in the next three weeks. Um, so you need to understand that. So when you hear this, understand that change takes time to settle into our bones because we want to be, we want to seek to be a community that doesn't just hear the truth, but practices the truth. And practice takes time. If you've learned how to play an instrument or learn how to, you know, play uh, any kind of sport, you understand that practice takes time and intentionality. So... My goal is never just to give you here a new way of thinking, but a new vision about what it means to be human. And that's, that's got to be uh, really clear for us that everything we do, everything that I'm seeking to do here, everything that we're doing together is to reimagine what it means to be human, to live as God's image bearers in the world. And so... As we spend the next three weeks exploring generosity, this is not going to be, let me just state, that, state it from the front, this is not a cash grab. I know if you may have not been in church for a while or you're just coming back, you associate churches with trying to take your money. This is not a, cha a cash grab as we spend time in these next three weeks. This is my vision, that we would be enthralled and captivated and set ablaze and dumbstruck gripped, fascinated, riveted. I spent so much time right-clicking, going through the thesaurus. <laughs> Engrossed with, wrapped, R-A-P-T, I love that. Wrapped by the ridiculous generosity of God. That we would in response, uh, in response to getting knocked for six by a generous God, ourselves become a generous community. That we would deconstruct the consumerism that so grips each of our hearts and our culture. That we would deepen our commitment to the poor as we grow into our relationship with international justice mission. That we would put to death the mindset of scarcity. That we would be a community that shares our material resources freely so that no one in this community lacks. 
that we would have a ministry teams that are thriving and resourced and not lacking people to serve, that we as a church and we as individuals would be agents. Listen to this. This is, this is big. We're not coming here, you know, as a, as a club. This is my vision, that we would be agents of change in our city and in our world. That we would partner with God in building apprentices of Jesus, followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus that are a blessing not to just this space, not to not just our gospel communities, not just to our Sunday gatherings, but in your workplace. That you would stand out as the most generous person at work. Ultimately, that we would reflect God's radical and abundant generosity with our time, our money, our gaze, right? When people are speaking to us, our gaze, our attention, we would be generous with our lives, that we would live lives knowing that he has supplied us with everything we need. What would change in your life? What would change in this church if we had a settled conviction that we have all that we need, that we in real reality lack nothing. So these are some of my hopes and prayers. We got to like perfect this in three weeks, right? So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll get started. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that you in fact are good. We thank you that the truest thing in the universe is that you are good and good thoroughly, that there is no shadow, there is no shifting with you, there is no darkness in you, but you are good, good, good thoroughly. And so help us now, we pray, Holy Spirit. I pray for those who may be far from you. Lord, I pray that you would bring them near. Holy Spirit, that you would move through this place and and start a renewal here in our hearts and in the hearts of those who may just be checking you out. I pray that they would be convicted by the Spirit and know, Lord, that you are good and you are for them and that we are for them and that they are loved. And so, Holy Spirit, help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people. Help me to remember the things that will be and let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And the church said? Amen. Now, one of the traditions that I've carried over, I've been here for 15 years, and one of the traditions, and and many of you have been in our home for this, that we've carried over from the States is Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. Uh, I know Thanksgiving Day is not as big here maybe as it is in America, but it's a celebration that I cannot give up. And I tell you, by far, you guys know me, by far, it is my favorite holiday. That's when the Christmas tree goes up in our home, and if you're doing it before them, you're blaspheming. You cannot play Christmas music before the fourth Thursday of November. That is when it begins. That's when it should begin. I know some of you are nodding your heads. It's not November 1. It's not after Halloween. It is Thanksgiving. I mean, you cook, you know, you got greens, beans, potatoes, tomatoes, (laughs) right? Yams, mashed, Turkey, chicken, stuffing, gravy, cranberry sauce, mac and cheese. Y'all know the mac and cheese we cook up at our house, right? Ginger, beer. I mean, it is legit the greatest holiday ever. Being able to pause with our friends and our family to give thanks to God for his abundant provision is such a gift to our little family. And it's a prophetic holiday. It is not just a holiday to gorge, right? It is a prophetic holiday. It embodies what will one day be true for everyone, everywhere, in one space, around one table. 
It stands in the world as a billboard testifying to the abundant goodness of God. And the logic behind this whole series that we're doing uh, around generosity, in fact, uh, the logic behind everything that we do is that we would live in light of the goodness of God. That we would live from the overflow of God's goodness to us. That we would wake up to the goodness of God, not only in the world, but toward us. But, but there are pockets in the world, large pockets, that don't experience his goodness and provision, who don't have prophetic billboards of abundance set up as a protest against what plagues the world, pockets in the world that don't worry about having a quote-unquote scarcity mindset, which we'll talk about because they have a scarcity reality. Today, we produce enough food to feed nearly 1.2 to 1.3 times the world's population. We create enough food to feed 10 billion people. And yet over 811 million people will go hungry tonight. We'll go to bed hungry tonight. It's a travesty. It's a blight on our world of gigantic proportions. I don't want to speak about generosity uh, ignorantly, ignorant from the fact of the kind of world that we live in. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And what we experience today is profoundly different to the vision of shalom, of this peace, of this flourishing that God has for his world. And that's why we feel that there's something wrong. Not just emotionally feel, but feel in our bones and in our guts, in our experience, that the world, listen, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. And scripture is not ignorant of the fact, in fact, We get our theology of sin or brokenness or dysfunction, whatever word you're comfortable with here, of the world. It never shies away from the deepest and darkest realities of our experience and of our existence. Whole books are dedicated to exploring these realities of how exactly how messed up our world really is. And this is the problem. We look at our world on one hand, and we look at what the scriptures say, Psalm 104, on the other, and, and a lot of us are scandalized. How can these things be true? Like, like what do you mean you feed? The, like, what, what, there's famine, and there is disaster. Like, what, what, what is it? There's still 800 million people who are going to go to bed hungry tonight. If he is good, we say, He's impotent to do anything about it, and he's no God at all. And so this has shaken a lot of people's faiths. And so as you come in here, and as I've prayed and labored over this series, I don't want to do it in a trite way. I don't want to do it in in, in a glib way. I want us to do it in the face. The most prophetic thing that we can do is that in the face of the reality of the world, we can say he is good, and we're going to prophetically live from that goodness and towards that goodness. In order to make sense of these things, we need to hit pause, we need to go back, and we need to zoom out because we can't speak about generosity in a vacuum. We need to do so soberly and prophetically. So when God creates the world, let me take you back to Genesis 1. When God creates the world and places Adam and Eve in that mountain garden of Eden, he gave them power. He gave them dominion. He gave them the jurisdiction over the earth. And what we see from Genesis 3 onward is this devolution, this chaos that God brought, that he pushed back and he told Adam and Eve to continue to push back. But what they did through blame shifting and murder and violence and abuse all the way from Genesis 3 to 11, what we see is this devolution of humanity. 
We begin to lay blame on God for the ills of the world. We've all done that. I have done that. But this is what we need to understand. I want to say pause. Pause. Hell has broken loose in the world. There are 811 million people who will go to bed hungry tonight. Why? Because humanity has allowed the chaos of hell to run rampant and it shows. And what the gospel does, it calls us to be empowered by the Spirit to be a what? A solution to that. Our generosity is a solution to that. We don't use the, the, the state of the world to deny the goodness of God. In fact, we take the goodness of God and we bring it to the broken world. We mimic his generosity to the world. Because the real question that we need to ask is this. How are we as humans going to restore what is broken? What's our part in this. The answer doesn't lie in us denying the goodness and generosity of God, but by claiming it. And so come with me to Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is, what, is what's called a creation psalm. It's a psalm that is a, it's a song. It's a poem that brings out these themes of Genesis 1 and 2, the first book of the Bible. And it goes a little something like this. Bless Yahweh. Now I want to say this real quick. If, you, if, you, if you're new to us, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when you read the word Lord, L-O-R-D, and it's in capitals, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. So I don't want you to get tripped up here. Uh, I'm not using my own translation. I'm using the ESV, uh, uh, but I will use God's personal name here. So bless the Lord. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Yahweh, my God. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Imagine that. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flame of fire. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Right? You get this idea of the grandeur, the bigness of God. Like, like, like big is... is it's too small of a category. There's no superlative that we can use to picture God. Every, all of our language, whether it's Hebrew or English or Greek, we are straining to understand this other. Like he's, he's over and above anything that we can ever imagine. Then the psalmist stops talking about God. And he starts talking to God. Verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank to the place that you appointed for them. And you set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. If you know uh, the book of Genesis, you, you've already picked up on some themes here where, where he is talking, the psalmist is talking about the way that God destroyed the world through the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. And the promises of God to never destroy the world with water again. There is order and beauty and provision. Then the psalm turns up the heat in verse 10 when he says this, you make the springs gush 
forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. There's continually this picture of abundance, of God being generous with his creation. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell, and they sing among the branches. For from your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth, listen to this, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And yet, so often, we understand that our earth is not in a good place right now. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and the plants, for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. This is what this is painting a picture of. This is painting a picture of of this word called shalom. Shalom is God's flourishing peace. Shalom is what the world is supposed to be. Shalom is that ache in your stomach when you turn on the news and you see something gone wrong. That's what shalom is. Those are echoes of shalom. Shalom is when you know that the world, you know it exists because the world, there's just something broken. Not only outside, but if you're going to be honest with yourself, there's something broken inside. There are ways that we ourselves are complicit in our own vandalizing of shalom. The psalmist continues in verse 24 with something like a crescendo where he says this, O Yahweh, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The sea and everything in it you have made. The land and everything in it you have made. Everything looks to you to provide and you do, and you do so in abundance. This is the God that we prophetically serve. The psalm, listen, the psalm is not denying the vicissitudes of life. It cries out as a witness to the glorious and good abundance of God's. We need to understand his lavishness, that God wants to give far more than we want to receive. But note 15, verse 15 particularly says this, right? And wine to gladden the heart of man. And oil to make his face shine. I mean, we fight against oiliness nowadays, but oil, right? Oil was a way to show, like, blessing. When a priest in Israel was anointed to be king, well, to be a priest or king was anointed to be king, they would get oil and they would drip them all. You know, like nowadays, we would think, you're going to stain my shirt, right? There's no way I'm going to get these oil stains out. But back, this was just a sign of blessing, of covering oil was a picture of shalom, of flourishing. Elsewhere, David says this in Psalm 16, 11. He says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. I want to say that again. I, I want everyone to hear this. This is David speaking about the God that we serve, the God that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, in God's presence, 
There's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where in the world did we ever get this picture of God being kind of this cosmic party pooper? Like, he, like, like heaven will be a party. Like we need to get that. What was Jesus' first miracle, guys? He didn't, he didn't, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't do any, he didn't do it in, 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 the, in, the, in the religious temple. He didn't do it at GC. He wasn't at Bible study. The guy was at a wedding and his mom was like, yo, they ran out of wine. And he's like, well, what does that have to do with me? And he goes and his mom's like, yo, yo you, better, you better show up, Jesus. And what does he do? He just tells him, listen, just fill these cleansing, like these big jars that were, uh, uh, were, were used to hold water to cleanse yourself ritually. He says, fill them up. And what does he do? He doesn't give you the boxed stuff. He doesn't give you the cheap stuff. God, Jesus made the best wine that man probably has ever tasted in the world. That's his first miracle. Like, like imagine what we're entering into when he creates the new heavens and the new earth. I mean, think about food for a second. We, you know, we could have been made like a, like a Tesla, right? And sometimes we wish we were. But God could have decided to design us in such a way that we have to just get plugged in and fueled up. But he didn't. There's a variety of tastes and cuisines. The tongue is a marvel. There are spots on the tongue that pick up saltiness and other spots that pick up sour and sweet. There are apples, but not just one kind of apple. Let me, who wants to guess how many kinds of apples there are? I'm really excited because it's not just one or 20. I think Catherine said, I don't know, 75. No, 20, uh, sorry, 7,500 varieties of apples. 7,500 varieties of apples. I thought it was just like the green ones and the red ones and then the good ones, the pink ladies. 7,500 kinds of apples. There are mangoes and dragon fruits and watermelon and rock melons and sushi and coffee. But not just one kind of coffee, but 30 types of coffee. I know! And then an almost infinite way of brewing the coffee. The sweet nectar of the gods. And I guess, you know, there's tea, you know, dirty water that you guys, I don't know. Bread, but not just one kind of bread. Right? Seb is like baking a different kind of bread every day of the week. 29 types of breads, and I'm sure there are more. And grapes, and even better, genetically modified grapes that are seedless. And cheese, and not just any kind of cheese, but 1,800 types of cheese. Now, you can keep all of them, except mozzarella and cheddar. You can keep the rest. I don't really care about the rest of them. You can keep the, what is it, 1,798. I can do math, mama. And on and on it goes. God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to make, he didn't have to give us the ingenuity to make seedless grapes. He, he, he didn't have to give us the ingenuity to make 1,800 types of cheese, but he did. And don't get me started on spices, right? I mean, it's nearly limitless. God doesn't have this peas get the grease mentality when he's come to bless us. When he does something, he shows up, he shows off, and he shows out. 
And what we see throughout the entire storyline of the Bible is this recurring theme of God giving, God giving, God giving. God is not stingy. He is not a stingy person. If we were to psychologize God, which we can't do, but if we were to psychologize God, we would say that he is not subject to a scarcity mindset. God has an abundance mindset. If we could speak in such terms, God does not hoard. Why? Because it all belongs to him. And he is the most self-secure being in the universe. God is not insecure. Again, all these words fail to grasp everything that God is. All of these categories feel so small. But we're just trying to make sense of the scriptures of the God who is beyond our comprehension. But if you would allow me to do that, God has an abundance mindset. I want you to think about that for, for just a moment. God knows everything. He, he, knows, he knows what's before him. He knows your limitedness. He knows the limitedness of the world, and yet God has this vision for the world that is nearly limitless. There are limitless possibilities. And because of that, God doesn't feel the need to hoard. He has no compulsion to keep things to himself. Psalm 50 says this, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Mine. You, let me, you own nothing. And you will never own anything. We somehow have been duped. We have been tricked that because we have our names on our car notes and on our deeds that that belongs to me. You, let me just tell you something that you may not hear out there. You own nothing. Not even yourselves. You are on loan to yourself. If you have children, if you've been blessed with children, they have been loaned to you. They are not yours. Your life is not your own. God owns everything. Everything is his. And because everything is his, he is so free and so willing to share it. God at his deepest is generous. And this is the world we live in. We live in a world of abundance, in a world of plenty. But we also see that we live in a world of scarcity because we hoard. Because we don't have enough. Because we have a scarcity mindset. And so to speak of God's goodness in the face of the world is risky business. It's not easy. In a world of greed and of endless consumption and of endless waste. You know, I just learned, listen, I don't, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I just learned this week that we actually ship our trash like to other nations. Like who? I didn't know that. Who knew that? There, there you go. Count me ignorant. Count me among the ignorant. I just, I didn't know that. I, we live in a world of endless consumption and endless Trash that's like it's so much that we can't even take care of our own waste. To speak of God's goodness is risky business, but it's something that the church could never abandon. In in light 
of everything, we could never abandon our prophetic task of saying this, God is good. That may seem so trite to you. That may seem so small to you. That may seem like, of course God is good. God is abundantly good. We partner with God in dispelling the darkness of our world, not by denying the goodness of God, but by embodying it and proclaiming it. When we look at the world with a scarcity mindset and we look at the world that is suffering and we dare say that God is good without embodying that goodness, without embodying that generosity, you know what that makes you look like? We must embody and proclaim his generosity. So God shows his abundant goodness and provision through his creation, and he continues to do so even as we have made a collective mess of things. That sounds a little too sanitized for my liking. We don't don't just make a mess of things. We vandalize, and we pillage, and we rape, and we ravage, and we disrespect God's gracious provision. We hoard. We keep it to ourselves more than what we need. And we allow the 811 million to go to bed hungry. And this isn't, as we learned earlier, it's not a food production problem. We make enough of it. This goes to, this, this is much deeper. This is a much deeper complex web of human dysfunction and greed and consumerism and sin. You know, I asked earlier, I asked earlier, how are we as humans going to restore what we have broken? Let me give you the answer. The answer is we can't. The answer is that uh, that solution is not found this side of heaven. The reality is we can't restore. We humans, humanity, collectively cannot restore what we have broken. But God. But God, in the face of our inability... But God. In the face of the intractability of sin, but God. In the face of the depth of the problem, but God. In the light of the reality that we, that me, me, Arnaldo Santiago Jr., if I felt it was safe, I would give you my social security number, but I'm not me. I want you to say, this is me. I am a part of the problem. I have been complicit in the problem, but God. How is God going to restore what humanity has broken? Let me tell you how. Through his own generosity. How will God restore what humanity has broken? God gave us a gift and we vandalized it. And what will God do to restore that? He will give. Peep this. God has healed and is healing this world through generosity through becoming human and doing only what humanity had to do but couldn't do. You get this. God has come in Christ to do what humanity needed to do but couldn't. Through becoming human and doing what humanity should have done but couldn't do and what God could do but didn't need to do. That's generosity. What does John say about it again? He says this, for God so loved the world that he, now this isn't saying for God so loved the world, like so much. This isn't quantitative. 
right? This is not saying this is the amount that God loved the world. That's not what this text is saying. This text is saying God loved the world in such a way. This is the way that he loves. When you think of God and you think of love, what comes to mind? For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. He gives. He is generous. What is God's response to our vandalization of the world? He gives. He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the way in which God loves you. He gives by giving, by an extreme form of generosity, giving of himself in and through his son. And this giving of himself wasn't, wasn't giving of himself to the opulence of humanity. God, God in Christ was not born in a palace. He wasn't even born at a time where we, every single one of us, I don't care what you have in your account, right? The fact that you even have an account. Like, I don't care if it's the comeback one that, that you got when you were a kid at school. Like, the fact that you live today in the West, we live like kings. You have, you have running water, you're a king. In Jesus' time, right, you would be seen as a king, a queen. He gave himself, not into the opulence even of humanity, but he was born in a barn, not a palace. He couch surfed as a 30-year-old virgin and was ashamed of none of it. Ashamed of none of it. Jesus, from heavenly abundance, came down and experienced earthly scarcity. That is what God did in order that we would live into and live out of the overflow of his goodness. Paul reminds us, for you know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, would become rich. And it's Jesus' substitutionary death, his death defeating death, his shame-killing resurrection, his kingdom-instituting ascension that releases us from the bondage of sin, that releases us to be God's agents of renewal in the world. It releases us from seeing God as stingy or as not enough. It releases us from the lie that God is not enough. Every single one of us this week somewhere in the recesses of our hearts or our minds have acted out of, even if you weren't aware of, the reality that we may believe that God is not enough. We fail to trust in the generosity of God, and so we, like Adam and Eve, have to grasp. We have to trust in our own ability to secure our own way and survival through the world. And always, it always, always leads to death. It always leads to disintegration. It always leads to the furthering of our dysfunction. What does, God, what does God do when his representatives, when humanity, those made to reflect him on his earth go rogue? He gives. He's generous. He's abundant in goodness. And if sending Jesus wasn't enough, if sending Jesus, and that sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? Right? Can we agree that sounds a little bit ridiculous? But if sending Jesus wasn't enough, in Acts 2, 
And in, 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 uh, in Peter, he, he talks about the, the Spirit of God as the gift of God. If it wasn't enough that Jesus would come in the flesh to do what we couldn't do, he gives you himself to live inside of you. In, 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 in the book of Acts, in the book of Acts, when the church began, there's a scene in Acts chapter 2 where they were, there were uh, a few of them uh, up in, in something called the upper room. And they weren't praying. They, they were just together. It doesn't say they were praying. It doesn't say they were fasting. It doesn't say they were, you know, doing anything. They, they were just together as the church, fearful, hiding together. And what happens? Something like a violent wind enters the room, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And what happens? There are something like flames of fire, like tongues of fire that rest on each and every single one of their heads individually. This signifies something. Fire in Scripture is God's presence. And this is saying that now, as the church, if you trust in Jesus, if you have said Jesus is Lord, then you right now don't only have a Jesus who was sacrificed for you, but you have his spirit who is living in you. What generosity is this that God would make his home in me, in you? The spirit of God is divine generosity. And if God has given us his gift of the spirit, the gift of his son, what is he going to hold back from you? Like we're so, we're so often through our own trauma, through our relationship with our parents maybe, we're so hesitant to trust in the goodness and the generosity of God. We wince at his good hand that we would be flabbergasted, amazed, stunned by our generous father. If God has given us the gift of the Spirit, the gift of the Son, I'm going to ask you again, what is he going to withhold from you? What is something in your life right now that you feel you need to be happy? What is that one thing that if it were taken away, you would be, you feel you would be destroyed, like undone? Maybe today is the day that you say yes and you Put your trust in God's divine generosity. And maybe today for you is the first time in a long time that you submit your life to King Jesus. Maybe today is the day that you wake up to the reality, to the beauty that God is for you and he is for you generously. Maybe today is the day that you all wake up to the wonder of this God who gives. The way that he shows that he loves you is that he gives and he gives and he gives. There's no takeaways this week. There's no hard application. There's not, hey, this is three things you need to do this week. There's nothing for you to do except to receive. To put yourself in the posture of receiving. To allow yourself to place yourself under the waterfall of God's abundant goodness to you. Today is a day of receiving.